0: Let's pray together. Oh, God, it is well with our soul. You're on the throne of the universe. We are here. The Lord of heaven is in our midst. It is well. Now, we go to Holy Scripture. A word to third millennials like us. Let today's teaching be clear this next to the last Sabbath of this series. We want to see the risen Christ. We want to sense him here. In his name we pray. Amen. remember the little rhyme, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row? Poor Mary. She's wild with grief, hasn't slept a wink tonight, too short the night. She drags herself out of bed, begins to stumble through the dark shadows made silver by the still-full Passover moon. Finally, she's all alone, all alone in front of the tomb. No guards, no soldiers to call, Halt! No sound, save this silence of an empty now ominously empty tomb. They've stolen her master's corpse. Still wild with tears, she runs back through the same silver shadows. Now the city gate ajar. She's quick in, up a dark alley, up the staircase, sobbing aloud. Now she's pounding on that wooden door, barred and shuttered. Somebody finally stirs. The door slowly, cautiously cracks open a slice of orange light like a cat scan down her face. We've grown up with the story. But today we go back to it because we're in the story. Open your Bible to the fourth gospel, this next to the last Sabbath in the gospel of John. I can't believe the school year is almost over. Find the gospel of John, chapter 20. You've got to relive this narrative. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Track it with me, please. New King James Version. What's the page number? 731. Put the title slide on the screen. Those of you watching on live streaming, we're delighted to have you right now. Those of you watching on television as well. Coming to the end of this year long series, this half of the series called The Last Days, The Last Days of Christ. Today's teaching Mary and Thomas, patron saints of higher education. Let's go. By the way, those of you watching, you see that website, www.pmchurch.tv, you go there and all of these teachings are archived at your pleasure. You may review them. So I'm not looking it up while I'm talking. John 20, let's go. John 20, let's pick it up in verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran, verse 2, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that would be John boy, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So, verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Verse 4, So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Well, what would you expect? Of course the boy's going to win. You go, John Boy. Some of us got older this last week. And we who run know that when you run with younger souls, that would be S-O-L-E-S. It's a given. They're going to win. Got a big race tomorrow. You know the youngest are going to win. So what's the big deal about that? I think we ought to be proud that Peter even ran it all. You go, Peach. (laughs) You go, Pete. I tell you, you know what? There's a little... I I sense just a little bit of hubris in John putting in that he was there first. We didn't need to know that. Okay, verse 4. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, John boy, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came... (laughs) Then Simon Peter came following him. One thing you can say about age. We're not timid when we get old. Peter straight into that that, uh, sepulcher. And Peter, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Can't have grave robbers now. No grave robbers going to snatch a body and fold all the linen before li- leaving. Impossible. And the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, is not going to let us forget. Went in also, and he saw, and get this, the first human being to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he believed. Verse 9 For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But not Mary. Perhaps the two have already left by the time she arrives. Through those same shadows, now a dawn, quietly growing lighter. An hour later, she returns to that spot. And now weeping, she peers into the sepulcher. Verse 11, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. Verse 12, And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So I'm brooding on this passage this last week and I come across a writer named Robert Smith and I discover a point, an observation I have never heard in all my life. I predict you haven't heard it it either. This is Robert Smith in his delightful book, Wounded Lord, Reading John Through the Eyes of Thomas. In that book, Smith asks the question, okay, he says, hey, reader, What Old Testament scene immediately comes to your mind when you see what Mary has just seen? You have an angel here, and then you have a slab, and you have an angel here. What scene comes to your mind? Of course, the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. How come I never saw that before? He says, you have it right there in that sepulcher. And then Smith observes. Let's put uh, Robert Smith's words on the screen, please. Jesus' tomb, I love this, Jesus' tomb is the new inner sanctum, source not of contamination, but of new and eternal life. By telling the story the way he has, John is declaring that the crucified and resurrected Jesus is himself the place of most intimate and gracious meeting with God. He is the place where heaven and earth meet in holy and creative communion, end quote. Isn't that beautiful? The risen Christ is the new meeting place of heaven and earth, God and man, Savior and sinner. It's all there now in the resurrected Christ. Ah, verse 13. Then they, those two angels right there, then those angels, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? They're rather tongue-tied in the fourth gospel. They do a lot of talking in the other three. But here they just three words in the Greek. Why are you weeping? And she said to them, keep reading, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, keep reading, verse 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Maybe because the sun is just coming up behind him and so she can't quite see. Maybe it's the tears. She, all she knows is there's this man standing behind her. And she, not knowing who he was, looks, now verse 15, Jesus says to her, oh, I like this, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now hit the pause button right there. Because in the beginning of the fourth gospel, the very first spoken words of Jesus are these. What are you seeking? The gospel opens. His first words, what are you seeking? And the gospel closes with his words, Whom are you seeking? A little mini inclusio, two little bookends, as if John would have us know that what when life's quest begins with the what, the goal always is to move from the what to the who. The human race clamoring for the meaning of life. What are you seeking? The human race that must be led to the urgent question: whom are you seeking? Isn't that great? Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, look, keep reading, she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, by the way, this is the same language John has already used when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word, takes away, she now uses it, John has her using it. The Savior who has taken away her guilt, and she has a guilty past. The Savior who has taken away her guilt, she says, she is so devoted. She says, just give me his body. I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, as if he was going to prove the claim that he made in John 10. Remember in John 10, Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, and I call them by name to prove that that, in fact, is true. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned. And she cries out. I mean, you can just see this moment as if it were a DVD. And she cries out to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said, oh, verse 17, do not cling to me because she's holding on to him. She just naturally flew at him and grabbed him, maybe around the knees, but she's got him. And he says, oh, don't, don't, don't don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father now and your father and to my God and your God. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she, She had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. I tell you what, every time I relive this story, every single time I find it utterly stunning that the God of the universe, the creator himself, Fernando... What's Fernando's last name, Ortega? Yeah, Ortega. Fernando Ortega, I love that song. His Jesus, King of Angels. This is a beautiful song. The King of Angels who after this victorious resurrection wants to hurry to his father with whom he has spent eternity and say, is it a done deal? Instead of hurrying to his father, he waits for this devoted, this dear friend of his. He he stands in the shadows of that dawning morning, waits to see Mary. I find it absolutely stunning. He waits to meet with her. I'll tell you why I find it so stunning. Because scholars, some scholars, and desire of ages. Now, I want you to listen carefully here. Have drawn the rifle. I believe, the rightful conclusion that this Mary of Magdalene. Now, listen. Some of you had a little problem with this last time around, but I'm going to show you. This Mary of Mag, this Mary Magdalene is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Mary Magdalene. Whenever that name is used in the four gospels, it is a cryptic link to her sullied and stained sexual past. The desire of ages tells us that she was led into sin by her uncle Simon the Pharisee, for whom they had this big for whom the feast was provided. An incestuous advanced by her uncle, has driven Mary into shame. She has fled Bethany. She has found a little village of Magdala. And there, because she has been led into sin, she sinks deeper and deeper into sin and guilt and further shame. Until one day, a young itinerant preacher and teacher and healer, they're calling the Messiah, came by her way And she found her Savior at last. I want to put Desire of Ages on the screen for you. Look at this. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner. But Christ knew the circumstances that had shaped her life. He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he did not. Listen, girl, you shouldn't be going to this church. Find another church. Don't come in. Please, don't you know who we are? He could have done that. He didn't. It was he who had lifted her from despair and ruin. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. The synoptics tell us that her name is Mary Magdalene, and I'm quoting now the synoptics, out of whom he had cast seven demons. The demon of gratification has held her a slave. Seven times, keep reading. Seven times she had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive his sin to his unsullied purity, and in his strength she had overcome. Mary Magdalene is the code language for her past. When the gospel writers want to talk about her present, it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Same woman, same Savior. What a Savior Jesus is. I mean, can you believe it? And he's waiting in the shadows. He's waiting in the shadows. He could go to heaven, but he's waiting for this forgiven one to come so that he might speak to her, the first human to hear the resurrected one. Wow. Amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. What a God. We worship right now. Ah, But there's more to Sunday. Keep reading. Verse 19. Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, now notice this, for fear of the Jews, because some some people say, oh, well, see, they're, they're already having Sunday night praise services. Are you crazy? There is no praise going on. There's only sweat and adrenaline. They are in that barred and shuttered, upper room for fear of the Jews. They're scared spitless. Trust me, nobody's having a worship service. And all of a sudden, keep reading, and all of a sudden, Jesus came and stood in the midst and he said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. Several years ago, my friend Melky Ponaya, who's with the communication department here at Energy, sent me a Reuters news agency story about a man, listen to this, a man in Nicaragua, lived on the outskirts of Managua, who suddenly turned up missing. His wife goes frantic. He's been missing for three days. Something terrible has happened to him. They go to the city morgue. There he is. They got the body, brought the body back in a casket, and while they were having the actual funeral service itself, the victim comes walking through that door the place goes bananas. It's a ghost. Turns out the man had left town to check on some property in the country and had forgotten to tell his wife. Who now is about to bury the wrong man but is surely tempted to bury the right man. I mean, you can only imagine the pandemonium when... When suddenly, sh- there he is, is, bigger than life. The dead one, the risen Christ. Luke says they, they, they actually convince themselves this is a ghost. And Jesus comes to them, where is this, in verse, verse 20. Jesus, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples, then they said, Oh, then the disciples are glad when they finally see the Lord. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love this. You know, I have th- that old hymn. Some of you don't know that old hymn, but I do. And I have the words written right here, right all around the white space I can find in my study Bible for this first stanza. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do what a prayer every morning when you go to your prayer closet you, that little corner in your dorm room that little corner in your in your family room that corner in your study when you go to your prayer closet you can say oh jesus would you breathe on me today fill me with the Holy Spirit. I mean, look what Jesus promised. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus said, look, and if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You've got you to gotta ask tomorrow morning when you go to have your prayer, worship, just say, Jesus, breathe on me, please. Breathe on me. And he breathed on them. Breathe the Holy Spirit upon them. Ah. All right, verse 24. Now Thomas, uh-oh, plot thickens. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, by the way, they, they're eleven now, one committed suicide, but they will be remembered as the twelve for the rest of their lives, that's their moniker now, they're called the twelve. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, maybe he stepped out for some fresh air, sweaty bodies that are nervous really fill a room anyway. Maybe it was for a few hours, maybe it was overnight, we don't know, but he wasn't there. And the other other disciples now, when he comes back, next morning, next day, who knows, the other disciples, when he comes back, they are clapping him on the back and squeezing his bearded cheek and saying, Thomas, you're not going to believe this, but we have seen the Lord, he's alive. And Thomas said, huh. Do you know why he said, huh? Because he's a graduate of a university, that's why. That's exactly why. Higher education, what does it train us to do? Those of us enmeshed in the life of higher education in this little parish, what does higher education train us to do? You have to think for yourself. You don't take nobody, excuse me, you don't take anybody's word for it. You have to have empirical evidence. Do you know what empirical evidence is? Sure you do. Empirical evidence is what you do in a laboratory for four hours on a Wednesday night. Empirical evidence is what you spend days doing in a library. It's how you come to conclusions. It's after you've examined all the evidence that you say, Aha, this must be true. Thomas has gone to university, a graduate, and he's been trained that whenever somebody lays an audacious claim upon you, <laughs> is the response. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, Hey, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, No, unless I see in his hands the print, empirical evidence number one, the print of the nails. And by the way, this is the only place in all four Gospels that nails are mentioned leading us to know Jesus was crucified by nails. You you read it into the others because it's in your mind. Only because of Thomas' word do we know. I, he said, empirical evidence number one, I must see in his hand the print of the nails. Empirical evidence number two, I want to put my finger in those print of the nails. And empirical evidence number three, I want to put my hand in his side. I will not believe until I do. <laughs> is it wrong to insist on empirical evidence? And is empirical evidence antithetical to faith and religion? Some think so. George Marsden, in his delightful little book, The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship, listen to him. Put his words on the screen for you. It is very common for academics to dismiss religion as simply non empirical, and therefore the idea of the relevance of religious perspectives to respectable scholarship as absurd. Keep reading. In the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the faculty here know what that is, a leading American intellectual historian responded that, quote, the notion that scholars' beliefs are compatible with their academic interests is loony and reflects a self-indulgent professoriate. So there. And somebody else wrote in, went even further, asserting that matters of religion are, quote, by definition, not amenable to logic, end quote. Clearly, ladies and gentlemen, in the realm of higher education, there are those who reject the compatibility of personal faith perspectives with serious, logical, empirical scholarship. They just don't work. But just as clearly, in what we are about to witness, we will see the evidence that personal faith and empirical evidence are not antithetical at all. Read on. Verse 26. And after eight days, okay, so it's next week now, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And there it happens again. Jesus, there he is. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and he said again, shalom to you. Verse 27. And then he turns. Where Where are you? And then he turns and looks straight at Thomas. One little piece, and now he's going for Thomas. And he looks straight at Thomas, and he says, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. That's a major Christological Christ. That's a major christ bookend or inclusio. The book opens declaring Christ is divine. The book closes again confessing Christ is divine. Intentional, My Lord and my God. Jesus goes on. Jesus to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you please. Let's consider Thomas and Mary, the patron saints of higher education, particularly Christian higher education, even more particularly Seventh-day Adventist higher education. You know, I say patron saints, of course, we know that they are sleeping in the dust of the earth and they await the glorious return and resurrection. The return of Christ. But let's just for imagine, imme- let, let, let's say that Thomas and Mary are the gospel readers of all of us who are enmeshed in higher education today. Okay? Why then? I'll tell you why. Because they, like us, operate out of an empirical bias. An empirical bias, I have to have that to believe. Mary has to see. Thomas has to touch. But what is so amazing, listen to this, what is so amazing is that Jesus rebukes neither one of them for that empirical bias. not a, not a scolding word. He accepts it. In fact, he, acqu- he acquiesces to their empirical bias and offers each of them what would be most convincing to them. For Mary, it's the sound of his voice, and that brings forth confession. For, S- for Thomas, it is the touch, and that brings forth the confession. Why? Because our Creator knows that he made us for the very quest that higher education thrives on today. He made us that way. Intellectually, we need to exercise the highest powers of our minds to grapple with the most empirical of all evidences. We've been made that way, which means it's okay to ask for empirical evidence. Empirical evidence is not counter to God. It's what God is. It's what God does. One of the seminarians in my preaching class, Nestor Soriano, I told him on Wednesday what I'm going to be preaching on today. And he he found something yesterday. and sent me an email. I said, hey, Dwight, did you see uh, this? the latest in the latest issue of the Adventist Review? A story written by Addison Hudgens. Title of the article, Lost Sheep? Discovering young people choose to leave the church. So we just slipped this in. I want you to see this. Look here. As one young adult expressed, this is Hudgens writing, this is the speaking. I always felt very guilty when I had questions I wanted to ask. Because apparently there are some communities within the community of faith where it's a button to ask questions. What are you asking that for? You ought to believe. It says it right here. Just a girl. Come on, boy. Apparently, there are some communities where asking questions is a sign of, of, of loss of faith or heresy or, or off the beam. One young adult says, I always felt very good whenever I had questions I wanted to ask. Now, Hudgens goes on. We need to cultivate critical thinking skills and not discourage young adults from questioning. When we avoid challenging Bible passages or brush off difficult questions, we do the questioner a disservice, but I thought this was insightful, and we do God a disservice. God is the one searching for us, which means he is big enough to handle our doubts and discouragements. Let him let the questions come. Ask me, ask me anything you wish. Let me help you find the answer. We ought not to be cutting off questions, please. It's okay to ask God for evidence to dispel our doubts, but we need to do so, listen, seriously, we need to do so remembering the limits, remembering that... Imp- there is, there is something beyond where empirical evidence goes. Reason goes to the end of empirical evidence, but then faith has to keep traversing. Faith can't stop. It has to keep going. Richard Rice, I have his book, and I'll share a line from his book, the title of the book, Reason and the Contours of Faith. And I'm going to hang this sentence on the screen for you for a moment. And if I were tweeting the one line to stop teaching, this would be the line I would tweet. This is it. Richard Rice Faith always affirms more than reason can support. Just look at that for a moment. Faith always affirms more than reason can support. Reason down to here. Empirical evidence stops right here. Faith keeps going. Faith says, I'm not stopping there. I keep going. Faith always affirms more than reason can support. Which is why Jesus, he does not rebuke Thomas. But Jesus pronounces this benediction... Read that again in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, please, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's okay. That's okay. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How does that go? Faith always affirms more than reason can support. I mean, you think about it. First generation. Okay, so here's Jesus and here are, here's the all first generation uh, crowd of believers. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, they're going to die. And they did die. In fact, John Boy is now John the Elder. They have—they are dying off. We're now into second generation. We're possibly into third generation. And guess what? For second generationers and third generationers, there is no empirical evidence. It's gone. I couldn't touch him. First John 1, what we, what we saw, what we handled, what we, what we touched, we don't have it. It's, it's true for us third millennials as well. We have no empirical evidence, which means, now hold on, which means that the only empirical evidence we can handle is the actual testimony of those who were here when the resurrection happened oh you say come on do i want that i'm not going to just do that kind of willy-nilly going back and taking somebody else's word for it what do you mean you're not going to do that you do it all the time you study history at all do you study history at all ever heard of the declaration of independence of course you have it's a forgery i'm telling you it's a forgery that, 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 that signature at the end of that document, was it? Thomas Jefferson. Oh, that's a forgery. I can tell. You say, Dwight, it's not a forgery. i in the National Archives and I've actually looked at the document. Guess what? So have I. But who's to tell us that isn't a forgery? Who's to tell us that this thing gets slipped in one night and we're all now believing a Declaration of Independence that was never made? There never was a Thomas Jefferson. No, we don't do that with history. We believe that. Somebody who knew Thomas Jefferson told somebody else about knowing Thomas Jefferson, who told somebody else, who told somebody else, who told somebody else, and we're down here, and guess what? Without a question, we, we accept by faith there once was a Thomas Jefferson, and he really did sign the Declaration of Independence. How do you like that? But the moment we talk about the Bible and history from the story of Christ, oh, I can't, I can't believe that. That's just a bunch of tales that were written. You have no more way of knowing the Bible is a bunch of tales than you do American history is a bunch of tales. We've got a crazy logic, don't we? When it comes to God, oh, suddenly, picky, picky, picky. But when it comes to our own history, well, yeah, hey, yo, Tom, phew, nice to see you. What's up with that? We've split. We have split ourselves. And we do not use the same modus operandi with both stories. We're hard on the resurrection story, people who saw him and wrote it down were hard on them, but we take Thomas Jefferson for granted. That's why faith has to affirm more than reason can support. Let me read verse 30 to you. And John, is, this is the formal ending. There'll be one more story, the last one next to And truly, John, John writes, and truly, Jesus did many other signs. See, there they are. The signs are, we, hey, guys, we saw it all. You haven't seen anything. But I've written some of these signs down. Why? So that you may, well, read it. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, verse 31, but the ones that I did write down are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I'm giving you empirical evidence, first-person testimony. I'm giving you first-person testimony. You have to believe what I tell you. You believe Thomas Jefferson. Why don't you believe Thomas? Believe. Believe. When he says, my Lord and my God, I'm giving you these signs so that you too, like all history, will come to believe the veracity of our story. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Faith always affirms more than reason can support. And by the way, that is precisely why evidence edu- higher education exists today. That's why it flourishes today. Because faith must affirm more than reason can support. The state school system gets you down to the end of reason, and it has to stop right here. But faith, the faith school system moves beyond that terminus and says there's more. Faith always affirms more than reason can support. Hence the reason for the existence of Andrews University and all of our sister universities. We exist because faith always affirms more than reason can support. So around here, unabashedly, we mix them together. Let me end by telling you about a young man I met on the plane two weeks ago. I'm flying over to Mannheim, Germany for a big youth convention. These are young adults. 1,200 plus German young adults. It was an incredible experience. So anyway, I'm flying over. This is like a Wednesday. I've got to fly all night to start preaching on Thursday. I'm get, I got on the plane in, in, in South Bend and here comes this guy down the, down the uh, aisle. And I'm looking him over. This is going to be my seatmate. He's, I guess, about 29 years old. Three day growth of beard. You know how these guys do it now. And he has his jeans on and he just plops into the seat beside me. So I'm reading a book. And I look over at him, and I never start a conversation right away. So I I, I notice he has an academic paper in his hand. Well, that's intriguing for me. So I'm looking at the title, Heidegger, Schleiermacher, Kant. Ooh, this guy's into philosophy. So after we took off, I I lean over to him and say, Hey, is this this a paper you're writing, or is it a paper you're reading? Turns out he's a Notre Dame uh, Ph.D., almost graduate. In two weeks, he'll be a graduate. Philosophy. And he's going to the American Philosophical Association, the APA, and he's going to, this is one of the papers that's being read, and so he's studying it in advance. He says, what do you do? I said, I'm at a little school just up the road from you, Andrews University. And uh, I pastor the University Church. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That always gets them. That's okay. They get over it. And so this is the perfect entree now because it's, he's brought it up. So I, so I look at him and I say, by the way, uh, what church did you grow up in? If you want to ask somebody about their faith, just ask the question like that. What, you're not saying anything. You just, What church did you grow up in? Oh, I'm an agnostic. I grew up in the Lutheran church, but I'm an agnostic. You know, I, I said, well, why are you an agnostic? He said, "Well, because look, i meant to all this studying, and I'm finding out that there are questions that just do not have answers. I'm not saying there is no God. I'm just saying I don't know from the evidence that's here, and so <sighs> I'm an agnostic." Why do you believe? Oh, good question. <laughs> and so, flying over Lake Michigan, we only have like twenty-five minutes. Flying over Lake Michigan, we're in this conversation. We're talking about theodicy—good God, evil word, world. We're talking about how can you believe? And when when we're landing, I'm thinking, you know, I got to keep in touch with him. And so I, I I said to him, Hey, give me your email address. I want to give you. I want to give you, I want to give you C.S. Lewis's book, *Mere Christianity*. Brilliant, by the way. He was a, he was an agnostic slash atheist. And I uh, became a believer in Christ. I want to send you his book, Mere Christianity. He said, oh, I think I read that back in high school. I said, you probably did, but let me send it to you. Give me your email. When I get back from Germany, I'll email you. Give, then give me your address. Because it's a safe way. just a two-step way. So he said, sure. I said, I'll send you another book, too. <laughs> no, I told him what the book was. a little book I've written called Outrageous Grace, which deals with how can you have a good God in an evil world. So it's a little bit of theodicy. And I said, I'll send you my book as well. Okay. So I get back, email him. Shoots me, yeah, I want that book. I, hey, I found, I found C.S. Lewis, so don't bother sending me that. I'm going to read that like you suggested. Because C.S. Lewis, here's the deal. C.S. Lewis defends the Christian faith philosophically without quoting a single Bible text. Good for somebody who doesn't want to hear the Bible but is open to think. So anyway, he said, I got the book, so don't send it to me. But I want your book, so I sent him that book. And I, I threw in another book, two for the price of one. I threw in a book called The Great Controversy. I don't know if you've heard about it. (laughs) But I wrote, I scribbled in the cover. I scribbled in the cover. Listen, you grew up a Lutheran. Here are the three chapters that really move me. When I'm feeling down and out, I go to these three chapters and I read them. I hope they bless you too. It's the history of Christianity. Blessings. That short visit across Lake Michigan with a young agnostic, in my way of thinking, proves it true. This bottom line that faith always affirms more than reason can support. Get your reason going. You say, Dwight, I'm not a believer here either. Well, I'm glad you identified yourself. Get your reason going. You can, you can take the first step of reason. And what's the first step of reason? Be just like Thomas. Say, hey, I have to have empirical evidence. That's the way I'm wired. My mind works that way. Go ahead, be my guest. Ask him for empirical evidence. Who's to say that the same living Christ will not show up one night in your room, stand before you, and he'll say, put your finger out and touch me. I am. Could a young philosopher, professor-to-be, open himself up to the possibility of empirical evidence that would be convincing to him? Why not? Faith always affirms more than reason can support. So you take the first step. Declare like Thomas, I must have empirical evidence and see if Christ will not open for you the windows of heaven and give you reason to believe. What did he say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Reach out like Thomas, and I believe. I believe. You may believe too why not bright mind that you are what have you got to lose reach out and ask for empirical evidence see what he does we are the product of higher education we need that empirical evidence you were so gracious jesus was with thomas and mary what will you do for us we're not being presumptuous we're not demanding we're We're humbly asking, grow our faith. We recognize that faith will one day have to move beyond what reason supports. But when that faith comes, take it deep into our minds and our hearts. To believe in Him, whom to know is life eternal, what could be better than that? Do, Father, what you must do. We place our little cards in in the, uh, the offering plates that come by now. We place our morning tithes and offerings. Tithes are yours, the offerings are ours, and we're grateful. And so we return to you and we give to you. Please take all of this as we worship this last moment in giving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.